Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How are you doing today? Good. It's a nice day out there today, I believe. Uh, I was out uh, skating earlier this morning, and uh, it was certainly nice and fresh in the morning, and uh, Mm -hmm. looking forward to getting maybe back out there again. There's some blue sky up there, which is something we haven't seen for quite a while. It's been pretty white slash gray for uh, quite a couple of weeks now. So it's sure nice to see the sun shining and, and uh, you know, a little less smoke up there. That was getting really depressing. Indeed. Let the sun shine in, face mm-hmm. it with a grin. Uh, Smilers never lose and frowners never win. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Bruce, we have some uh, information to smile about today. Mm. Um, One of the things we'll be talking about, Dom Lachishan of The Athletic, who is an uh, awfully sharp guy, um, has come out with his list of the the teams that have improved the most and the least in the NHL in the offseason. And to my surprise... I mean, he's fair-handed, but to my surprise, he has orders fifth as the fifth most improved team, up 10 goals, according to his calculations, um, based on off-season moves, essentially the addition of Connor Brown and the deletion of Kyler Yamamoto, Clem Costin, and Nick Bugstad. That surprised me. I didn't think the orders would be rated that high. Um, there's certainly a lot of unrest uh, among a small faction, mainly among a small faction, if we're completely honest, of Oilers fans online, who thought the Oilers should have been far more aggressive, you know, buying out Warren Fogle and CeCe and maybe even Jack Campbell and making some major moves um, this offseason. So, um, but um, that would make the Oilers the second most improved team in their uh, conference, the Western Conference, after Dallas who Lecician has as the most improved team in the NHL. And uh, the most improved team, the Oilers, are in the Pacific Division. So we'll talk about that. We'll talk about the uh, re- just a, a sad story. It's the wrap-up of Oscar Clefbaum's uh, NHL career. And uh, I just found that super – you wrote a post on this. I found it. I just found it. In thinking about it again, I hadn't thought about it much. It's so sad. It's just super sad from a lot of perspectives. Uh, it's just, it's, and, you know, among other things, Clefbaum was injured badly enough that he had to to leave hockey at a young age. And he's going to, you know, those kinds of injuries that he has. I hope, I don't, we haven't heard. I hope that um, he's okay. But man, those kinds of things can haunt uh, a, a former athlete for the rest of his life. And I suspect... Wow. That will not be leaving Clefbaum, you know, the sh- shoulder injuries that he had are, were significant. We'll talk about the signing of Raphael Lavoie, uh, the New Deal. We'll talk about um, the Oilers' um, goals scoring and goals against um, this season. And we'll also talk about a post I did on the most di- disappointing moments in Edmonton Oilers history. And I have the the Vegas series seventh overall. Now I don't know if you're going to agree with that, Bruce. You might not agree with that, but for, but for me, um, it's this is a subjective thing, right? There's no there's no way to measure mm-hmm. disappointment. But for me, this is this is where it ranks. I'm really disappointed 
in what happened. And um, we will get into some of the other bad moments as well, which uh, were worse than this Vegas series for sure. But it's up there on the list for me. All right, Bruce, let's start off with the Raphael Lavoie signing. He signed a one-year deal. What was it, 8.75 million? Yeah, $874,125, I think it was. So let's just call it 874. I guess it's just just about $100,000 above the new league minimum of 775, which uh, many slash most players in Lavoie's situation uh, have been signing for in recent years as uh, uh, as the salary cap continues to drive a, a, a big wedge between uh, the top stars and the rank-and-file players, more and more of whom are expected to make the minimum or very close to it. Uh, all of Wa did on the very last day was he accepted his qualifying offer. And his qualifying offer was based on his last, uh, uh, on his um, contract figure, on his entry-level contract, which was 832000 I think it was, and because he'd been paid a couple of rookie uh, signing bonuses before he even turned pro. Anyway, uh, he got um, uh, a 5% raise on that was what took him to 874 and the assumption was the Oilers would sign him for the minimum, maybe give him a little sweetener at the AHL level, like instead of 70000 pay him a little, a little bit more. Uh, and Lavoie just said, oh, I'm just going to sign my offer. Why should I take less, I guess, is his thinking. Uh, and my thinking is that he didn't, he wasn't thinking very clearly uh, because it's a drop in the bucket compared to how it might impact his future earnings. I mean, this is a guy who's right on the cusp of making it to the NHL. And this year, for him is his platform season on which he will build his next contract. And the, the you know, the Oilers were never going to sign him for more than one year extension, unless he was willing to sign two years at the minimum, which he shouldn't have been, but one year at the minimum is kind of the standard. And the problem is David, that now, uh, instead of being on a level playing field with several other guys who are making the league minimum, uh, placed himself below them on the call up list if they ever get into a, a situation like they did throughout last year, where they're anywhere close to, to the actual cap maximum or ceiling, uh, they will call up uh, uh, Lane Peterson at 775000 where maybe they can't, won't even have room for uh, Raph Lavoie at 874000 I mean, it's not much. Uh, but last year it was, uh, you know, that excess... In the case of Matthias Janmark making 500 grand over the minimum, they didn't have room for him. They had to send him to the minors. He had to wait a month to get his chance. And <clears throat> you notice even guys like Janmark and Derek Bryan accepted significant uh, uh, discounts uh, on their pay grade this year to uh, uh, to try and get in under these cap uh, figures. Well, a young guy like Ralph Lavoie with his let me remind, zero NHL games played to this point. Uh, making, you know, taking a stand on, on a matter like that. I mean, hey, it's great that they're going to pay you more if you're in the NHL, but if you're not in the NHL, that's actually going to cost you a lot more than it's going to make you. If you're making 70 grand in the AHL because the team couldn't afford to call you up, you're pissing away money uh, this year, and you're also way more importantly pissing away opportunity 
to, uh, uh, you know, show yourself, make your case that you're, you know, that you're part of the long-term solution. And for whatever reason, I mean, he just signed for 75,000 more than Ryan McLeod did last year, you know, in <clears throat> a similar circumstance coming out as ELC. And McLeod took a bit of a bullet for the team. And uh, uh, this was a guy who, you know, been on the team for well over a year by the time that that contract and, you know, to establish himself on the team. Lavoie has done none of that. So to me, this was uh, uh, a penny-wise, pound-foolish kind of decision by him and his agent. I think he got terrible advice here. It's a it's a knothead move. Mm-hmm. Like it is it's just a knothead move, Bruce. Like what are you what are you doing? You know, he's in a pitch battle. He is in a pitch battle. You know, and he gets here's the thing. If he doesn't make it because of this, if this is the deciding factor between him and Lane Peterson, right now he, he and Lane Peterson and Drake Kajula are yeah. kind of in a pitch battle for the 12th, 13th spot on the team. And there may only be 12 forwards yeah. um, on this team. I suspect that's where we're headed with Bouchard mm-hmm. and McLeod getting more than people expect mm-hmm. and maybe getting an extra year on the contract, each of them, because of that. But, um, you know, Kajula is making the league minimum, mm-hmm. 775. And um, Lane Peterson is making the league, the, the league minimum, 775. Now, I can see Lavoie, um, the Oilers, if he gets sent to the minors, he only gets 70,000. Mm-hmm. And that's where the negotiation with Raphael Lavoie should have been. If you're going to grind mm-hmm. the Oilers, why not, mm-hmm. okay, say to the Oilers, okay, how about 150,000? How about $200,000 if he's sent to the minors this year? Mm-hmm. That's where you should be fighting like heck right. for the extra dollars. Mm-hmm. If you're his agent, because mm-hmm. that really helps the player. Then mm-hmm. when he get if he gets sent down, he's not picked up by anyone else. It doesn't help Raphael Avoie to to basically tie a boat anchor to his leg in terms of making this mm-hmm. team, where the money is going to be so tight and where every dollar that Ken Holland spends now mm-hmm. early in the year means he can spend that much less, accrue that much less at the trading deadline to bring in a player that the orders are going to really need. The Oilers have probably one big move they're going to be making this year at the trading deadline. They need every single dollar they can find. They can scrape together to get the best possible player in that moment. Mm-hmm. And um, he's just taken, he, he's taken, um, you know, not a, not a, it's not a lot of money, but just mm-hmm. these small amounts of money make a huge difference. And ask Matthias Janmark about it. He was sent mm-hmm. to the minors last year because he he had a $1.25 million contract. They needed to, to get below the cap, and he didn't make the team because of his contract. And and Matthias Janmark is a proven NHL player who, when he did come up, looked really good, especially defensively. Um, you know, I, I, I don't know. I didn't watch uh, the Condors on TV uh, on the internet last year, but... So I can't say how close Raphael Lavoie is, but we do see in the second half of the season, he moved up, he started to score. Oh, yeah. And he he has a real chance mm-hmm. with the Oilers. Doesn't help. Why did you do <laughs> I'd like to hear the reasoning. Maybe, the maybe fact- there's something we're not thinking of, Bruce. Maybe we've missed something. Well, maybe they just didn't like what the Oilers were counter-offering. No, I have to to say I don't know enough about the AHL structure. I know that when they're on the ELC, there's a, there's also a limit to the AHL minimum of 70 grand. And for young players, I think it's, it's more the veterans. 
the AHL recognized veterans that get the you know 150, 200, sometimes 400 thousand dollar salaries at the AHL level, and the young guys tend to work for five figures. So I'm not even sure how much room they had there. I just think that he uh, sabotaged himself, quite frankly. And, you know, even if the reasoning is, well, if I, you know, if they have to waive me if I don't make the team, then some other team's going to pick me up. Well, maybe some other team that's looking at themselves, geez, we got guys cheaper than that here, you know. Oh, so you think he, that they might not be able to give more than 70000 well, I'm not sure if it's seventy, but I, I, I think there are restrictions on AHL salaries, and I'm not sure it's just, just during the ELC, like all the ELCs seem to have a AHL. Yeah, but he's not on the ELC anymore. Grand. But I think I think it extends a little bit longer in the NHL. But I, it's I honestly just don't don't know. Well, what I've, I've okay, heard so, um, I see only older players that start making these significant sort of bonus, you know, AHL level salaries if they don't make the team. You know, like uh, Seth Griffith and well, actually, yeah, you know, there's guys well, that are Gleason, on this two way. Yeah, I, and I don't know the rule either. But by way of example, Ben Gleason is going to be earning the Oilers signed this defenseman. He's 25. Right. He's he, he's going to get four hundred and twenty five thousand okay. dollars in the minors this coming okay. year. And um, so he's not that much more experienced. And let's see Cam Deneen here. What's he going to get? Who's also twenty five. He's going to get two hundred and ten thousand. Yeah. And uh, Noel Hoffenmeyer. Uh, I mean, he's the third guy who's not mm-hmm. that much older than. Yeah. Uh, one second. He's his minor league salary is only seventy thousand. Hoffenmeyer. Oh no, that's Lavoie. Because he signed, he signed an ELC. Me, no, I, I, no, uh, no, he's out of his ELC. Hoffenmeyer. He yeah, no, he signed a one-year ELC because Toronto had never signed him to oh, really? an NHL-class contract. They signed him an AHL contract. So the orders are the first team because he's 24. It's only one year, but his his AHL component would be governed by that. And here's my solution. Minor league salary is eight eighty-two thousand. Hoffenmeyer is eighty-two thousand five hundred. Right. Okay. Calling original Pozar. We need yeah. your help. Yeah. Ira follows the uh, AHL and he knows the CBA well, and I suspect he knows details about the the uh, I was going to say inanities, but I'll call them intricacies of the AHL bargaining agreement as well. When can a player, how much experience does he need before he can start getting decent money in the AHL? And is it an actual rule or is it just kind of a tradition? And I don't know if you'd call Hoffenmeyer's contract an ELs, an entry-level contract. I think it's been, it's been actually designated as such. Okay. Because so, he had never signed. He was always on the, you know, the Luke Esposito contract in, Tor- in Toronto with the Marlies. So was like DeHarnay's contract the ELC when he signed? Uh, uh, his, his. When I he when he, he signed that first contract, he was twenty six. Hoffenmeyer is twenty four. Yeah. So there's uh, uh, current contract entry level one season twenty four years old. It's, you can only sign a one year ELC, but the club's got some uh, uh, control going forward it's not like they have to waive him next year uh because he's on his second contract there's a little more leeway than that but uh hoffenmeyer is a pretty interesting uh interesting player yeah we've talked about him and it's i like i like him good point scoring good point scoring and he's a rugged player got in six fights Mm -hmm. last year so that he's an interesting guy all right bruce um let's talk about um dom lachishan's new article and um, 
as I've as I was saying, he's he's got the Oilers as the um, fifth most improved team in the NHL based on offseason moves, and um, top in their Pacific Division, second in the Western Conference. And here's what he writes: uh, "Quote." The owners only made one addition this offseason, and it's a good one. Connor Brown comes in cheap and should fit perfectly anywhere in the team's top nine. He is a hardworking winger who can score and grind while being an asset at both ends of the ice. That's a sizable improvement from Kyler Yamamoto, who just wasn't working out in a top six role anymore. The rest of the team's improvement here is from Nick Bugstad and Clem Costin no longer being on the roster. Both are viewed as below average players, though Edmonton's actual improvement will depend on who the Oilers get to replace those players. So um, I, he, Don Lashishan is a Leafs fan who watched Connor Brown closely. And whatever else yeah. his analytics say, he, he strikes me as just a very sharp observer of mm-hmm. hockey. And his enthusiasm for Connor Brown, it, it's not unusual among people who watch the Leafs or the Senators. There's a lot of people who like this player uh, and and the way he plays the game. So that's encouraging to me. But Bruce, I cannot agree with um, Dom on Costin. Mm-hmm. Um, like, I, I, listen, he, he, he scored 11 goals last year in 57 games, and he, he did it on near 20% shooting. So people are... Uh, are leery of that number that he, you know, if he, and he had scored, let's say five or six goals last year, there wouldn't be the interest around him, but man, that guy in the playoffs, Bruce, um, he was one, he he was one of the best two way wingers. He didn't get a lot of ice time. I don't Mm -hmm. quite know why, but he was one, he, as in terms of a two way winger, that guy got the job done in the playoffs. He took a, his, his regular season, his two way play in the regular season was okay. But in the playoffs, it was really good. And so he trended up in a, in a small sample size. More than that, though, teams are crying out for this kind of player. Someone with skill who is not just tough, but is intimidating. Clem Costin is an intimidating hitter and fighter. I think he's one of those few players who kind of the, the opposition, they're really alarmed when he's on the ice because you don't know what he's going to do and he can hurt you. So... Teams uh, are begging for this kind of forward and for the Oilers to let one, to, to find one, like found money and to let him slip through their fingers. This to me feels like the oh. kind of a Pat Maroon-esque, mm-hmm. uh, maybe not quite that level of mistake letting Maroon go as they did a few years ago. But this is, I just, I don't like, I know the Oilers had to do it because Detroit were willing to pay him mm-hmm. uh, more than the owners could afford right now. But I, <sighs> I, I don't see... Costin is a below average player and what he adds in terms of physicality, especially if Evander Kane was, was to be out is, is um, it's significant for a team. It was big for the orders last year. Yeah. His opportunity really couldn't have come any better when it did come in the fact that it was Evander Kane who was out. And so they needed not just a replacement on the roster, but they needed that specific player type, a guy who could be a little truculent out there on the ice and uh, bellicose even at times. And uh, uh, he, uh, uh, you know, he did take the body. He did, he did show up in the scrums. He did drop the flippers a couple times. Uh, you know, he was a, a physical force out there. And he scored some big goals. I mean, sure, he shot the lights out. Maybe he had a couple he shouldn't have had, but, you know, 
when you fire a wrist shot as wicked as his and you get it on net, it had it had a better uh, decent chance of going in because he really did have a plus hard shot and and he would he scored a few goals sort of pucks bounced to him in the slot and he just buried him and in another year maybe he doesn't bury so many of them but I thought he did plenty of things that were pretty helpful and the sad fact is that the Oilers now with their you know their big salaries they can't even consider adding a guy for two million and they can't consider keeping a guy like uh, Nick Bugstad or Klim Kostin if they're worth two million on the market because they don't have that extra million they need to get guys that Hell, they don't have that extra hundred thousand for Rapplevoie, let alone, you know, an extra million over the minimum for, uh, for a more established player. So that you know, that's two guys that they lost just because they flat out couldn't afford them, and really three when you consider Yamamoto got moved because they couldn't really afford him either. And I'll say this, Dom, in his list here, out he does not uh, mention Devon Shore. And I guess that's probably not a player front of mind for a lot of people, but uh, he actually too had a pretty good good year. So we got Bukestad, Yamamoto, Costin, and Shore who are out. Now here's an interesting little fact somebody pointed out on Low Tide's comments section the other day. This is the Oilers' goals for percentage leaders in 22-23. Number one, Devin Shore, 65%. Number two, Nick Bugstad, 62.5%. Number three, Clem Costin, 61%. Number four, Kyler Yamamoto, 57%. The four guys that were best on the Oilers for goals for percentage, which is a nice stat. It's not the be-all and end-all. This is five-on-five. The Oilers outscored the other team significantly. With all four of these dudes on the ice, they're all gone. So to me, Dom's statement that the orders are improved, much as I like Connor Brown, uh, well, they're going to, I do agree with the statement. It depends on who they sign to replace these guys, but they have a couple of holes, a uh, couple of holes to fill. And what if, uh, maybe Holloway and Lavoie do it internally, in which case maybe we're golden. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, 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 these guys, these are the guys that were, I thought, underrated on their contributions of the team last year the huge improvement in the bottom six well the guys who had good years in the bottom six earned raises and now they're getting paid somewhere else maybe Devin Shore still comes back on a league minimum deal I mean he, he in the second right? half he played he played well Devin Shore was a good player in the second half so I wouldn't be against it like if he's willing to sign a league minimum um why not you know Bruce the orders in their bottom six um Okay, let's let's just start with Brown over Yamamoto. Kyler Yamamoto really had a had a weak year, and then was worse in the playoffs. It's the fourth time in a row he's been worse in the playoffs in the regular season. It it was, I think, time to move on. And this this okay. is, is looks like a significant improvement in the so for the bottom lines they have Warren Fogle, Derek Ryan, Ryan McLeod, Matthias Janmark, Dylan Holloway, Raphael Lavoie. Um, that's six players. They're the six front runners. And then they have newcomers, uh, Lane Peterson and Drake Kajula, and rookies, Xavier Borgo and Tyler Tulio at this point. And I expect they'll bring in at least one more veteran player on a minimum contract. So I'm quite, um, part of me is, is um, I'm glad for the Bugstad decision. I think $2 million is an overpay for that player. I liked him in the regular season fine. I thought he was not great in the playoffs. 
especially when they they bumped him up to play tough competition. He wasn't fast enough or skilled enough on defense, but he wasn't the only center on the Oilers who was exposed on defense. Every Oilers center, in my opinion, looked really weak at times on defense, except for Connor McDavid in the playoffs. They all they all had terrible moments um, where they failed to cover players, and Bugstad was one of them. So um, Dylan Holloway was a good center in college hockey. People, you know, mm-hmm. he's not really being mentioned right now as a fourth-line center. But if you had McLeod and Holloway as your third and fourth-line centers, you have two big, fast, young players who I think can play center in the NHL. And I, I, I'm open. I like it actually if they've opened up a spot for Holloway. I don't think they did this on purpose. It's not their first choice. But if 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 it comes out that a spot has been opened up for Holloway as a fourth line center, I also hear they think of him as a third line winger, maybe even more than that. But if there's a spot for Holloway there, um, that's great. I think he's earned it. I think he's. I, I like him as a player. I think he's. Will will fill in and provide the two way play that Bugstad did um, at even strength. Um, will Lavoie fill in for Costin? I don't see it. Um, there's a chance. There, 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 you know, he's just not as he's not intimidating. Costin was right. an intimidating guy. Lavoie is he could score if he got the same amount of mm-hmm. ice time. Not hot. This guy's a scorer, so he might be able to score 11 goals uh, or even more possibly. If you got a regular shift in about ten minutes a game, like this guy can score. So um, he's a big guy. He can he can hit. He's I mean, there, there's truth be told, we just don't know what we have here yet. Yeah. And he's been so erratic on the on the uh, uh, while in the pipeline, uh, where last year's extended stretch of excellent play in uh, in the 2023 portion of the season was definitely his longest stretch of good play and maybe his longest stretch of good or bad play, but he had fairly long stretches of both over the previous years. Uh, The hope is that that he's raised his game, that he's recognized what he needs to do and is now consistently applying himself and doing it. And the hope is that he shows up at training camp this year and has that, still has that uh, attitude and, and, uh, uh, mindset of how he approaches the game because I do think you know he's a decent prospect with a good chance to help the team, uh, but he's there's not going to be a lot of margin, even though they have to waive him if he doesn't make the team. There's just so little margin in there that they can't have a guy around who's not helping, who's feeling his way around. You know he's got to be able to come in and make some kind of a positive impact. And as for Lane Peterson, I don't really know anything about his game other than he scored in limited games. He scored a goal a game in the AHL last year. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty good. But I think it was just eight, 17 goals in 18 games. So, um, you know, I don't know how he's going to fit. You know, it's it's he's like I think about 25 years old now, 26 years old. So um, maybe Play kind of a Ryan, Ryan Petulny-esque um, yeah. hockey player is my guess. Um, all right, Bruce. Let's talk about Oscar Kleffbaum. Um, you wrote about him. He's is it today? He's thirty years. 30 He's thirty years, years old. old today, July nineteenth, nineteen ninety-three. Uh, when the Oilers drafted him in two thousand eleven in the first round, he was still seventeen years old. So he had he had a long way to go, and a uh, uh, you know, and it took him a while 
to work his way, you know, two years in Sweden, uh, and then uh, uh, most of a year in the AHL and uh, post-trade deadline cup of coffee. And then year four, he started to establish uh, himself more as a full-time player. And that fall of 2015, Peter Chiarelli signed him to a seven-year extension at uh, four point, just under $4.2 million a season. And it was seen early as being very possibly to be a value contract. And he still had uh, one year of his ELC to play when he signed that. He'd only played 77 NHL games, and here they're giving the guy 30 million bucks. You know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a risk, but it was a, it was a, a good risk. Like he he was trending well, and you know what, David, from 2015 to 2020, when his career ended. Uh, he led the Oilers, forwards or defense, in average ice time per game in five out of five seasons. Like, he was a workhorse. He played 22 to 25 minutes a night, uh, you know, like when he was in there. And uh, he, uh, you know, he made it He made it look easy. He played all situations. He moved the puck. You know, he wasn't an overly physical guy. He was in good position. Uh, he... he uh, uh, you know, he was he was a uh, 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 solid and improving defensive defenseman. I mean, that's the other thing. We have no idea how good he would have got, David. He was 26 in his last season. And still, he was up to 26 minutes a night by then. And he uh, he was, uh, you know, big time on the penalty kill. He was running the power play, and he was playing a ton at even strength. And at that time, the Oilers had... Uh, uh, both Clefbaum and Nurse, uh, who projected as being their top four left side defensemen for years down the road, right? Because Nurse was uh, in the spring of 2020. Nurse just turned 25 when he fi- he signed his bridge deal, and Clefbaum at that time was 26, and it looked like you know the future stretched out ahead of him. And you think five years from now, there's a pretty good chance both of them are going to be better at the ages they were. And then Clefbaum went away. Uh, that changed it changed Nurse's um, role within the team and just also his role within the hierarchy uh, of the team, the payroll structure of the team. They had to pay him as their number one D man. Where before they kind of had a one and a one A, and they both looked they both looked pretty good. And uh, the other uh, the other impact David was in trying to replace. Uh, Oscar Clefbaum on the team. Uh, Ken Holland ha- had made several attempts, right? The first year he ran with the guys that he had. Chris Russell was about the best, and Slater Kukuk, and, you know, but players of, of that ilk that were really not top four level defensemen, uh, with Russell at least having had the experience in the role. And then, uh, uh, at the deadline that year, they traded, uh, I think it was a fourth-round pick for uh, Dmitry Kulikov. So he didn't work out. So the next year, uh, in the summertime this time, uh, Holland makes the big trade, third-round pick, Caleb Jones for uh, Duncan Keith and his big contract that caused the... But the thing is, Keith was brought in to play two left D because he didn't have Oscar Clefbaum, who should have been there had to pay a 38-year-old guy more than he would have had to pay his 27-year-old guy to play uh, play left defense. Uh, and 
then at the deadline that year, they brought in Brett Kulak in a trade for a second round pick. And Kulak was, he was third pairing last year, but this year after Keith retired, he became the second pairing D-man. And then this year at the deadline, when Kulak was, you know, he was just sort of so-so a second pairing, they traded a first round pick and a past first round pick and a good player in Tyson Berry to bring in Matthias Ekholm. At least in this case, they brought in a guy that had more contract you know, that's going to solve the problem long term. Now, finally, they got Nurse and Ekholm, and you can say, yeah, they got a real solid top four on the left side again. They got two real good players. But in the meantime, Nurse has gotten that huge raise, and uh, they've traded, not only have they gone through all these guys, they traded out a fourth, a third, a second, a first, you know, and a prospect. You know, they traded a lot trying to fill Clefbaum's spot. You just think the alternate history, which is what I wrote about, just change one thing. Oscar Clefbaum doesn't get hurt. How many ways could this affect the Oilers? And I just talked about the guys on the defense and how differently that could have evolved with a healthy Oscar Clefbaum and just a massive kick in the junk for the Oilers to lose their number one defenseman with three years to run on a value contact. And then the second kick in the junk was then having to manage him on long-term injured reserve for the last three years and being completely unable to manipulate uh, and accumulate a crew space under the salary cap because of the vagaries of the LTIR rule. Three years that they were stuck with this formerly very good bargain contract that wound up biting them in the ass, and it was just a horror story. Yeah, it was uh, <laughs> maybe Shirelli's best move. Turns out to be a move that in the end. Well, it's not the, the contract. Yeah. But it's it's listen. Yeah. The loss of Clefbaum and Sekera. You know, the yeah. knives are out, Shirelli. Like by the end, people were convinced he could do nothing right. But uh, this GM lost. Andre Sekera and Oscar Klefbaum in the 2017 playoffs mm-hmm. against Anaheim to major mm-hmm. injuries. And that sunk his, that's, you know, Sekera was playing at a, such a high level of hockey. Klefbaum was probably the best Oilers player in that playoffs um, against San Jose and Anaheim. That's where I had him ranked at the end. Um, Leon Dreisaitl really took a huge step up. McDavid mm-hmm. wasn't that good. You know, he wasn't great that year. Yeah, uh, he was mugged, of course, by Ryan Kessler. But um, Clefbaum was outstanding, and he never was again that level of hockey player um, that he had been in 2017 playoffs uh, after that shoulder injury. He just never got it together and played at the same high level, both on offense and defense, as he as he had played mm-hmm. then. So even when he was here his final two years, he wasn't the same player, and then it just ended his career. What got me, Bruce, um, you know, um, I went through photos last night of Clefbaum. I was looking at him and I just went back in time. And that that guy was the epitome of a Greek god. Yeah. Like he was, he, he is unbelievably handsome, uh, well put together, built guy. And just, just, sh- just the shining good health mm-hmm. on this player and the optimism, you know, you can get from, yeah. he's your top prospect. And he came on and he worked his way up where mm-hmm. so many orders defensemen didn't, and he was looking like he was going to be a real number one demon in yeah. the NHL. Um, you know, him and McDavid and Drysdale were the key to this team for a long time. And it's just painful and sad to think about mm-hmm. um, that lost yeah. 
lost opportunity from from Oscar Clefbaum. You mentioned like you know Adam Larson left the team eventually, and that they, they were good right. friends. Larson and yeah, Clefbaum. that might, might not, not have happen. happened like that. Darnell yeah. contract, second contract, he would have gotten less ice time um, with with Clefbaum around if Clefbaum hadn't been hurt. And you know Nurse might might you know his contract would have been probably likely far more reasonable um on that he, he's now writing on so this just had huge repercussions for for the oilers hit the loss of clefbaum and the loss of sakura you know it led to two years where they were out of the playoffs which brought in evan bouchard and philip broberg and it's funny because broberg now he's he looks they almost look like twin brothers at the same age when you look at the photos of uh philip broberg and oscar clefbaum and it's Broberg, whose career is developing in in a kind of a similar way to Clefbaum, although now the opportunity isn't there for for Broberg that it right. was for Clefbaum. The door's yes. not wide open. It was wide open no. for Oscar Clefbaum. It is not. Broberg's going to have a tough time getting ice time, unfortunately. Like I, I would like to see them open the door for him as well. That's why I'm glad about Holloway maybe getting a chance here. I think that has to happen for young players. No. But um, so we do have a player who can. Who can remind us at least, and hopefully will develop in the same way that that Oscar Clefbaum did. But you know, as for Clefbaum, I just I wish him well. Mm-hmm. I, I still have this when his name came up. I was thinking maybe is it is it possible? You know, could he still come back? Um, could he still be an NHL player? Uh, I think that's unlikely. Well, but for three years of his contract, have all p- played down without him coming back and. Now you know he wouldn't get. He'd only get a fraction of the money if he wanted to try and come back at this yeah. stage. So you'd have to think it's it's over, and it's it's a sad uh, sad thing. I mean, he also said he wanted to be able to lift his kids one day. So uh, uh, hopefully he's able to do that. And uh, I'm not sure that he has any kids yet, but uh, uh, he may not be sure either. He was a pretty popular fellow, <laughs> but it was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we'll strike that for the record. Oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, he was a very popular fellow, and he was. Uh, 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 I think he was commonly enjoyed by most Oilers fans. There wasn't the division around this guy that there is around. It seems to be around so many of them, and it was just kind of a tragic loss to, to lose. You know, such a key player at such a, a pivotal point, just when he was really blossoming. And uh, just it's it's a sad story. And as for Greek gods, I mentioned two of them in my uh, in my fantasy post about a healthy Clefbaum. I said he's got a, a a body by Adonis and a shoulder by Achilles. Of course, Achilles' real problem was his heel, but you know that's the uh, this at least the metaphor being referenced was he had this one problem, and the rest of them was almost seemed perfect you know like 6'3 215 like if I was to pick a size out of the blue that I want a D-man to be it might be that right but can skate which he could do and you know can pass and can think and can, you know he had, he had a lot of things going on and uh, he was his first homegrown Swedish defenseman which has always been a dream of mine to have a team populated by Swedish defensemen <laughs> yeah well, when uh, when uh, Clefbaum was dipped in the river, his mom was holding him by the shoulder, evidently. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's it. All right. Uh, that's a Greek myth that we're referencing mm-hmm. about Achilles. Who's his mom? Fetus, I think. And um, mm-hmm. was it no, her? Or was it? Huh? Was it? Uh, I don't know, Bruce. Okay. Um, 
Did they have that legend in Greek history about crossing the river to, to death? I'm not sure. It was and was it that river? Oh, the river Styx. Yeah. yeah. Or that's yeah, no, this was a different. This is a different yeah. river that had more. Uh, uh, had more life-giving. Mythical power. Healing yeah. yeah. Mythical healing powers. Exactly. Yeah. Wow, so our Oscar did not have them. Yeah. Indeed. And whenever the players strapped on his equipment, they could not get the job done. All right. Um, Bruce, let's talk about the goals for and the goals against the Oilers. Uh, could Rudy score a lot of goals? Um, not so good at defending. My take is the Oilers, the Oilers' goal should be to, to slash 50 goals against mm-hmm. this year. I think it's doable. Mm-hmm. Um, that would be going from 3.1 goals against per game to 2.5 goals against per game. Um, at their best times in the last few years, they've averaged about 2.8 goals against per game for long, mm-hmm. long stretches of play. So I think it's entirely possible that they can do this um, with improved goaltending and improved defensive structure, improved defensive systems. Um, what's your take? Do you think they can keep scoring at the same rate while mm-hmm. slashing um, a significant amount of goals against? Well, that is the next step for sure. I mean, the scoring has come up, 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 up. And in 2019, they are, sorry, in 2022-23, they led the NHL in goal scoring for the first time in 36 years since the Dynasty Oilers of the 80s uh, led the league in goals for six consecutive years by wide margins in every year. Uh, These Oilers also led the league by a pretty wide margin, 24 goals over second place Boston Bruins. Uh, so at the offensive end of the ice, they got things done and then some. And for, you know, that's that's always the thing that, you know, we're always looking at. Well, we got this little problem at fourth line forward, and you know, how are we going to fit this guy? We got the guys that are going to put the puck in the net. So let's start there. And as you say, uh, the next step is to keep the puck out of the net uh, a little better. I I like your 2.5 goal. I think 2.8 would be great. They got it even down to 2.8 uh, goals against with the amount of goal scoring they have. I mean, they've proven they can they can go on lengthy winning streaks, uh, which uh, I mean that the last quarter of the season the Oilers gave up 56 goals in uh, in 21 games, so that's a little under 2.8, and they went 18-2 and one. But then in the playoffs, they had six out of 12 games where they gave in four or more goals. And I think they won one of those games. So, you know, that's that's the, that's the big uh, difference maker. It was Bruce. It was it was, um, and I'm going to get to this in terms of my bitter bitterness about the playoffs, which I which I have. It was pathetic the way the Oilers couldn't defend a lead in the playoffs. It was unacceptable, and the whole team needs to think hard about what went on. And I don't, I just don't blame the goalies. You know, I blame them somewhat, but it, this was a whole team thing. And um, it was uh, kind of embarrassing. Vegas came back in every single game and um, that they won. And that's not acceptable. It's just, it's just um, to me, they, 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 they lost the playoff series. They should have won because of weak defensive play. And um, if the players are taking that as a wake-up call, they should. If the coaches are taking that as a wake-up call, they should. They and should. if they're not, they need to. They mm-hmm. really need to. Like, it's not enough to say bad puck luck, um, shooting the puck, which was also real. You know, there, there was some of that. 
this is a team that just just unacceptable uh, defensive mistakes cost them possibly a Stanley Cup this year. Um, and and um, that's on them. If they want to blame anyone, don't blame the NHL. Mm-hmm. Don't blame your goalies. Blame yourselves for the way you played hockey. And blame goalies the coaches are part for, of it. <laughs> goalies are part of it. Yeah. Blame but the just coaches part. for the system in, pl- yep. in, in place, which, which was yep. a porous system compared to what Vegas did. So I, I think it's really possible, and I think they should aim high. I don't know if they're going if they could hit the fifty cut slashing the fifty goals against, which would take them to two point five goals against. But that should be the goal in the regular season, and the goals for will come. I don't think they have to worry about mm-hmm. that. Um, what they have to worry about is being able to clamp it down when they get a lead. The coaches always say, I mean, all coaches always say that if you look after defense, the offense will take care of itself. If you're winning the puck. And whatever section of the ice, when you have the puck and you take it on the counterattack, you've got, uh, you know, you'll get your chances then. And the Oilers have, uh, well, they have some defensive issues that have persisted. Uh, they have other ones that have come up and gone up and down, like the penalty kill, which last year was kind of down. Uh, but as for the playoffs, I mean, my list of culprits extends from the coaching staff to the goalies. Mm the defensemen, the forwards, the penalty killers, and the penalty takers. All those guys need to get their stuff together. (laughs) Short list. Stay out of the box. Kill your penalties. Kill the other guys when they have penalties. I mean, that's that's sort of strength. Uh, But at the defensive end of the sheet, they just need a little step up in performance from most of the players on the defensive side of the puck for me from what I saw in the playoffs like down the stretch they were fine and then I guess it was a you know a steady dose of of better teams you know like the, they didn't have any games against Anaheim or, or uh, uh, you know Arizona in the playoffs to fatten the stats up and, and they held their own against the Kings but then against the Golden Knights they clearly fell short so, Bruce, this segues to my post on the uh, most bitter moments in Oilers history. And I, I have to say, first of all, that I I missed, I had a brain glitch and I missed uh, one of the main uh, bitter moments, which was Carolina, the loss to Carolina in 2006. And I would have had on my list probably, um, probably, yeah, definitely head of the Vegas series. Mm-hmm. Um, game The game mm-hmm. one loss. Yeah. Letters were up three nothing, and um, and Mark Mark Andre Bergeron and Andrew Ladd of the other of Carolina barreled into Dwayne Rolfson, who was arguably the Oilers MVP in this series, and knocked him out of the playoffs. Now, I was the score tied at that point. Had they already given? It was up? already tied. Yeah, it was yeah. like six minutes left in the third, and the Oilers had already blown that big lead. And then that happened, and then Ty Conklin came in as a, one of the um, rotating backups that uh, Craig McTavish had going that year, where it was Rollison starting and either uh, UC Markinen or Ty Conklin as a backup. And this night it was Ty Conklin, and he made a critical error along with defenseman Jason Smith in the last minute of play where they coughed up a shoot-in behind their own net for an open net tap-in to decide a game in the Stanley Cup Finals. It was tragic and it was it was a very painful loss in the sense that you know not only did they blow a game that they clearly should have won 
but they lost their their goalie, uh, Roley, who yeah. all he'd done in the playoffs, he went 929 against Detroit, 931 against San Jose, and 934 against Anaheim as the Oilers rolled through three favorites uh, to uh, uh, get to the Stanley Cup Finals. But so I would have had that, I think, actually. I don't know why yeah. I forgot it. Well, you mentioned Chris, Chris Pronger leaving. Yeah. Uh, and kinda, that was kind of me. That was the cherry on top of that whole bad yeah. situation. But that, that game one was when everything. Yeah. I, I think he still would have left, even if they yeah. had won, it looks like. But so yeah. here's the list. And I'm going to insert the Carolina game one where I would have put it if I had been thinking straight in that moment. Um, so number one, most bitter moment, the Gretzky sale. Um, it was just it cost the Oilers, I think, probably they won one Sunday Cup. I think they probably would have won four or five if Wayne Gretzky had stayed at Edmonton. And it kicked off the exodus of all the great players. If they had had, a, if they had, had an owner who wasn't desperate for cash, mm-hmm. um, they would have won, I think, um, instead of what, just one more cup, they would have won four or five more cups with that team, I believe. Uh, the New York Rangers won one of those cups, in, as a matter of fact, with largely... Okay, number two is the um, Game 7 loss to the Calgary Flames, highlighted by Steve Smith's uh, shooting the puck in off Grant Fuhr's leg and the Oilers' own net in the third period. Um, Number three, I'm going to go, that's where I would insert the Carolina, um, Game 1 of the Carolina series. Number four, this isn't a moment, but it's, it's in terms of bitterness, being an Oilers fan, it's a decade of darkness is my number four on the list. It's hundreds and hundreds of bitter moments adding up to one big, ugly slug of bitter. And uh, so that's number four. Number five, Peter Pocklington's threats to move the team. People who weren't here in the 90s probably have no idea what this was like, but it was just ongoing. It was terrifying. Year after year after year of threats. And at the same time, Quebec lost their team, Winnipeg lost their team, and Oilers. And Hartford lost their team. And the Oilers Hartford. were the only WHA team who didn't lose their team. And would have lost their team, but smartly in negotiating a new lease with Peter Pocklington, the city of Edmonton um, included a clause that said before Pocklington could sell, move the team, which he tried to do to Houston uh, in 1997-98 to Les Alexander of Houston, mm-hmm. He had to, they had to give Edmonton buyers the right of first refusal at $75 million. And to the rescue came Cal Nichols and the Edmonton Investors Group. And they ended the up and down tumultuous roller coaster ride of Peter Pocklington's ownership of the team, buying the team and securing them in Edmonton. So that whole, that whole bitter time, and they, they failed to make the playoffs four years in a row. He totally uh, ripped apart the team, this the great 80s team. So that's number four on my list. Number five. Michael Larg deserves a mention in this great saga of uh, of uh, Oilers suitors. What a, what a joke that was. Is it, he was Michael a, Larg he was coming a, to town. I think the only thing that topped it in Edmonton sports time was maybe that day that Don King came to town. I can't remember talk if he... Talked to Edmonites. Yeah, Edmonites. Yeah, Larg, Larg, Larg was a complete... Um, uh, he was a complete phony, and he came. They gave him the grand tour. They gave him time in front of microphones, and he talked about his investors, which it turned out he didn't have any. And it was just uh, a crazy time. I think I was at that press conference. I was at the Gretzky press conference where Pocklington mm-hmm. tried to make it sound like 
Wayne <laughs> wanted out and this was a re- real trade. So we've had a couple of these uh, hard mm-hmm. to stomach press conferences. Yeah. Number five on my list is Chris Pronger demands a trade. Um, that was really, he had just signed a, you know, that in coming to Edmonton in, in the summer of 2005, he signed a five-year deal. The Oilers lost the the the, uh, the series to Carolina, but it looked like the Oilers were set up to have a strong team for a number of years built around Pronger and Rowley and this and really good core of forwards. And when he mm-hmm. left, it all fell apart. It turned out the move was largely due to the unhappiness of his wife, Lauren, in Edmonton. You know, she's an American. She just didn't, she wanted to be in the United States. Mm-hmm. And he chose uh, family over city, which is understandable. Number six on my list, Ryan Kessler interferes with Cam Talbot. It's a really bitter moment uh, in the 2017 playoffs. Watching that goal against again is I shocking. I couldn't even click the arrow. Down. It is shocking. It. it is shocking that that was ever allowed. It was shocking at the time. It is more shocking now. They have since that time become much more aggressive in taking away goals. And mm-hmm. there's just no way in the world. It should it's just how I just Well there's fifteen seconds left in a three two game day. It's not like it really in a tie series. It's not like it really had much impact on the outcome. If you're a conspiracy they, theorist, they did a 75 second review of that goal. I mean, that night, remember during the third intermission, and and uh, was it Rudy mentioned he grabbed his pad, and I went back and I watched the replay again. 75 seconds between uh, challenge to dropping the puck at center, and all they looked at was did Nurse push him in? Did Nurse? Pu- yeah, Nurse pushed him in. Good goal, but Nurse pushed him in, and then he laid in the crease for four seconds, and he hung on Talbot's pad and forced his legs open while his teammates shoved the puck in there and it was a uh, it was a horrible moment in a lot of ways like as a fan I almost felt violated by that and violated a second time by the league that let it allowed it to happen I know I know there are fans who who have given up watching hockey based on that incident they just got tired of the nhl's officiating Mm -hmm. and um if you're a conspiracy theorist who believes that the nhl is stacked against canadian teams is that that goal has got to be exhibit a it is that was the same series as what do we say to Corey? yeah that is a disgusting and embarrassing call and Mm -hmm. unforgivable absolutely unforgivable they should have cleaned house at the nhl um officiating and um Review office, war room office. Okay, um, number seven, um, the Vegas series, and I'll and I'll get into why just a little bit more. Number eight, the miracle on Manchester. This is when the this is when the Oilers were first a really great team in the Gretzky area, and in the 1982 playoffs, they gave up a five goal lead in the third period and lost six five. Just shocking in overtime. Number nine, the Ryan Smith trade, which. Um, it was it was just the last time, you know, the Oilers um, lost Curtis Joseph, Doug Waite, Bill Guerin due to contract concerns. We thought that might end, uh, but in the spring of 2007, they, they were not, not very far apart. And there's still some, you know, why did he leave? Why did he not take the money? There's still debate about this, why did Ryan Smith left, whether he actually wanted to go or, you know, it's still not exactly 100% clear. But that really hammered a lot of fans. Ryan Smith was a fan favorite, unlike any other Oilers player after the glory era. 
he people just love this player. Um, you know, he lost. There was a time he got shot in the face by a Chris Pronger shot and lost three teeth, and then came back into the game and set up a big goal in the playoffs of two thousand overtime. So he he was just loved, and he got moved, and that was devastating for many fans. Mm-hmm. And eleventh eleventh on my list, and this is more of my dislike of the NHL. That Smith was tenth because I've added in the um, oh, right, I've okay. added in the um, Carolina thing which right. I forgot, and the eleventh thing is the Adam Graves compensation. If in terms of getting screwed by the NHL, this is so laughable. <sighs> Adam Graves was the heart and soul of the Edmonton Oilers at that point. Twenty three years old, um, great two way center. Um, he went on to score uh, fifty goals one year for the Rangers. That year. That year, and he led. He was a key player in the um, 90, 1994 Stanley Cup of the New York Rangers. And uh, what did the Oilers get in compensation? Uh, uh, Troy Mallette. Troy Mallette. Let's it, even like this is not to be critical of Troy, Troy Mallette, but to be fair, it just a non-entity, and a player mm-hmm. at the time was nowhere in the same class as Adam Graves. And mm-hmm. this was the NHL. The NHL at that time set compensation for this this type of free agent, younger free agents who were signed. And they set, they gave the Edmonton Oilers Troy Millette for Adam Graves. It was one of the biggest robberies. And it wasn't perpetrated by another GM. It was perpetrated by the NHL on the Edmonton Oilers. And mm-hmm. that really left a bitter taste in my mouth. I somehow managed to lose Adam Graves as a free agent, but the compensation that they got... Uh, not to say it was a ripoff, but after the um, after the exchange, Adam Graves would go on to score 280 goals for New York Rangers, and Troy Millette would go on to score one goal for the Edmonton Oilers. One goal. He played 15 games. Graves almost played that many seasons, you know. Well, that wasn't good, um, no. Bruce. The in terms of Vegas, I think the bitterness. Um, for most fans, uh, it, the bitterness, I think, has to do with the refs in the NHL. The ridiculously weak call on Philip Broberg uh, penalty, um, the slashing of Alex Pietrangelo on Leon Dreisaitl, and the, you know, this one pitiful one-game suspension that Pietrangelo got. He, he, he needed to be two at least, maybe three. And then the circumstances around Darnell Nurse's fighting major that saw him get suspended for a game later. Why was he... Why was that even considered a fighting major? And and um, you know, and why you know could they not have waived that as it had been done in the regular season at times? And those things um, have left a bitter taste for many fans, including me. But for me, it, it's more a sense like the orders just gave. They, I thought they were the more talented team. They were the better team, and I think they got out coached. And they they got out defended. Two things happened, and they just they gave up a series they should have won. They should have won that series. And this isn't as dramatic as the the miracle mm-hmm. on Manchester loss, right. but it's similar. That was that was caused by shoddy defense, by um, not getting the job done defensively when you needed to get it done. And I I just hope that the this this Oilers team recognizes that. I think that that Oilers team tightened up somewhat. And that's what we need to see now. That's why I'm bitter about it. I just I just keep thinking about it. So, yeah, 
Yeah, I'm less bitter in the sense that, you know, I think they deserve to lose and they lost. I got way more bitter when I think they got screwed. Like I do think still they did against <laughs> yeah. Anaheim. You know, uh, Vegas got the better of them. And I'm sure I'm disappointed about a lot of things. I don't, not sure bitter is the right word. Uh, they, they just, you know, it wasn't like it came down to one goal. You know, they lost in game six, five to two on their home ice, you know, and, and they just didn't seem to have any answer for uh, superstar netminder Aiden Hill in nets for uh, for Vegas. And the Oilers couldn't get a lot of stops themselves. And, you know, it was just, you add up a few of these issues and the team that you'd think maybe the Oilers had a little edge on them. I mean, Vegas had 111 points and Edmonton had 109. So it's not like there was a lot to choose between them. But uh, uh, Vegas came through. I think they were healthier too, David, to be really honest. I think Hyman, Kane, uh, McDavid were clearly nursing something during the during the series uh dry side a lot certainly after he was slashed and some even suggest ryan nugent hopkins was uh was playing hurt and i'd even throw in the name of matthias janmark as a guy that the Oilers could have used in that series but he was struggling with a couple of injuries of his own and uh, not much able to help out and uh, uh, they wound up with uh not enough players at their best to to uh get the matchups that they probably needed against Vegas. They had to put McDavid and Dreisaitl together, for example, where maybe the better system would have had them on separate lines, as just as uh, one example. And Kane being very ineffective was a big part of it. Too. Yeah, he was been injured all year, and, um, and Hyman injuries. was clearly injured. I'm mm-hmm. not so sure about uh, McDavid, I'm not, I don't know about McDavid. And Dry Doughty, Settle, Doughty, same got, him. Doughty got him. And, and McDavid was clearly not at his full yeah. skating for about six games after that. He was getting better towards the end of the Vegas series, but there was a while that he was, uh, uh, you know, he still found his way to get his points, but he was not dominant and not beating guys one-on-one the way he routinely does. And part of that was system, but part of that was McDavid just maybe being 90%, you know? Dirty Drew. Hope they don't play the I'm game. I'm going to smack him if I got a chance. He did. And Drysaddle yeah. got the penalty for tapping the knob of Doughty's stick after Doughty kneed McDavid. <clears throat> Say no more about that. All right. So. <laughs> there we go. Anyway, Bruce, we're waiting for the McLeod and Bouchard. Um, Contracts to be signed. We haven't, you know, no offer sheets yet. Fortunately, we'll see what happens. There won't be any on McLeod, but um, uh, and his, um, uh, he got the very last date for uh, uh, arbitrator, August fourth. So you're going to still have, uh, you know, a couple of weeks to negotiate with him and avoid that process. And there are different schools of thought as to which of the two guys they'll sign first, but. Uh, they got to get them both done. Yeah, that'll be the last business of summer, I guess. Unless, unless, uh, although they could bring in still, I think a forward on a or two even, but a forward at least one on a minimum contract. So that may be done. Thomas Nosek mm-hmm. had been talked about, but he just signed with New Jersey, so that is off. What did he sign for? Uh, I'll have to look it up, Bruce. But okay. I didn't. Um, 
Thomas Nosek contract, cap friendly. Mm-hmm. He, um, you know, I don't really know the player, so I can't. Looks like um, one million, Bruce signed for mm-hmm. one million dollars. Okay. So the orders. He just clearly, you know, I'm sure the Oilers could have offered a million dollars. He just probably wanted to play for um, in the East Eastern Conference. I mean, he played in Boston, so um, it's not surprising that he stayed in uh, the Eastern Conference. He had played for the Vegas Golden Knights yeah. for four years, but yes. um, I remember yeah. him as a Golden Knight, but and a pretty yeah. good defensive player and not much offense, you know, and uh, so. I mean, the Oilers got Matisse Janmark for a million bucks. I'm not sure that I would trade Janmark for Nosek, to tell the truth. Well, that's exactly right. Now, Nosek plays yeah. center, but um, the Oilers do have options at center. Holloway can play center. Derek Ryan can play center. So even if they don't bring in another center, um, there's mm-hmm. players who are experienced center icemen um, who could take on that role. Well, Bruce, let's leave it there then. I think okay. we've covered the uh, covered the field. Waterfront. Yeah, we'll be digging into prospects soon. I've sent out the prospect list to right. uh, myself, uh, you, Kurt Levins, and Jim Matheson, um, mm-hmm. who's also participating. I think Jim's already voted. Yep. Um, so okay. we'll, we'll be ranking the prospects, and that's what we'll be uh, digging into throughout August. Mm-hmm. Bruce, thanks for talking today. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between times, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast.